My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shut up. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure of, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happen to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. Try and think of a famous dress. Not a famous woman in one or a famous photograph, but the actual dress the design. It's not that easy, is it? But our guest today is the designer of such a thing. His galaxy dress, fitted, flattering, cap-sleeved, very recognisable. Can you see it in your mind's eye yet? Indeed, much knocked off. It was a phenomenon in the noughties. In 2005, it was worn by pretty much every glamorous star you could think of. Beyonce, Scarlett Johansson, Demi Moore, Halle Berry, Victoria Beckham, Keira Knightley, everyone wanted one. The designer is a charismatic Frenchman based in London. And he is, of course, Roland Murray. Now, I mentioned the galaxy because it made him very well known, but this conversation is not about that. In fact, we don't even talk about it. Frankly, I doubt he wants to. I mean, it was more than a decade ago. But this is why many people know him. What is not well known about Roland Murray is that he's really interested in sustainability and in the environment, and that he has thought deeply and questioned everything around it, from how we make things and why, to how that has evolved for him as a process, the impacts of the broader industry, the power of fashion to communicate a message, and how we can make sustainability hot, and not just hot right now. Now, I doubt there is anyone better placed to conceptualise fashion's perpetuation of addictive desire than Roland Murray. He has this kind of design magic that makes women just desperate to get their mitts on his stuff. It's all about how he makes them feel in his clothes. And he says that they don't come alive until a woman puts them on. Bizarrely, he puts this down to being the son of a butcher. Wait till you hear why. It's great. Who knew that Roland Murray was across what he calls the beauty of the green revolution? Although, once you get talking to him, it does seem kind of obvious that he would be, because he's such a considered designer. And I love how he talks about the power of longevity. He says, you should keep your clothes and let them have the life that they deserve. 
And I love his accent, obviously. After decades in London, he still sounds like a suave French movie star, and he looks like one too. And in this winding conversation, he will take us through his early life. Um, he was a model for Gautier and Yamamoto in the 80s. To him, killing it on the dance floor at the legendary Paris fashion hangout Le Palace. You know I love talking about nightclubs full of fashion people. These days, Roland finds balance by escaping to the country on the weekends. And he says, I never thought I would go for that life. But this conversation is all about change, evolution, reflection, maturing. We recorded it in Roland's head office in Mayfair, London, with Dave the Jack Russell dog in tow. Love, Dave. And it's really at its core about what Roland says is so present a problem that we have to face it and that is sustainability. Now, I'm always extremely grateful to the people who come on this show and who take the time to share their stories and insights with us. I mean, it really is a privilege and it's lovely. But I want to say a special thank you to Roland and his team because it was very generous of them and bold and cool to embrace this as an opportunity. It's the first time that Roland has talked about sustainability in an interview like this and to be very frank and very generous and open with his responses and questions around the topic. So I think you're really going to enjoy this one. And of course, as always, dear listener, I want to thank you. Thank you for sharing all of this with me and for your continued support on social media. I love it. It really makes my day to receive all your messages and also feedback and suggestions of people that you would love to hear interviewed. And I can't wait to hear what you make of this one. I actually might just start by asking you, Roland, about where we are, because we're in your incredibly elegant London flagship. We are at the top of uh, number eight Carlos Place in the middle of Mayfair. And uh, yeah, it's quite magical. The place is quite unique. The building is amazing. It's gorgeous. The building is gorgeous. The building is like a person. It is listed. That means I couldn't touch it. I couldn't break it. I, I had to deal with it and to live with it. And to uh, we fell in love. And uh, now it's seven years we're here. It's actually a very elegant backdrop for the clothes because they seem so at home in the kind of grandeur, I thought. For me, luxury is privacy. And uh, as a French guy, I really wanted to recreate the ideology of houses in Paris in the 40s, 50s when Yves Saint Laurent opened his house in Paris on Avenue Montaigne. And I think Carlos Place was our close I could find to Avenue Montaigne, that kind of really best secret of London, not in your face, but really powerful. Discreet. Yeah. And a lovely surprise. That French French touch about to be private. Roland, I've just been at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit. Congratulations. Oh, thanks. It was super fun. I wanted to raise a speech that was given at that summit a couple of years ago by Vanessa Freeman from the New York Times. And she called this speech Sex and Sustainability. Yeah. But her argument was, it's just not. (laughs) It's still in in, in process of evolution because sex and sustainability are two contradictions. Absolutely. And there is something about sustainability which... To accept it, we have to accept at the beginning the concept of slow paced. We have to accept to understand and, and to move on in the, at the right speed, which is when you are outside of the box, when you approach a subject like sustainability, which is there is no blueprint of the future, you have to take your time. And if you take sex, which is in a certain way a reflection of fashion the last 10 years, because sex and, and fashion were linked together, you sell 
fashion the same way that our sexuality has evolved through the years. That means we are more open, we are more willing of, of experience, we are straight away on the snap, we are on social media. And that's where the rhythm of sex is so much quicker that the two of them have to find where they meet. That's so interesting that you would associate that with the speed of fashion. Oh, it's completely... Uh, you know, we do clothes because we consider people life and, and one big part of people life is their identity through sex. That's when you have to Well, we dress it. to attract other people. We... we dress to finish ourselves. And the way we finish ourselves is to communicate with other people. But I always think that fashion is quite, you know, we're, we're trying to drum up desire, desire for beautiful product, desire to buy something new, and I guess those things... Addictive desire. I think we've been going through a, a situation where food trend and so many collections in one year that we, we create more uh, an addictive attitude to desire more than creating desire. We've been designer, it was a moment we could be considered as fashion dealers, you know, like, like we, because we were producing fashion like an addict person will You cons- want the buzz consume, of the new thing, consume, but you don't yeah. even want to keep it. Yeah. And we move on. I think we're coming out of that period and sustainability is the way to cleanse ourselves. Fascinating. Vanessa Friedman's point was those two words just don't hang together and that the idea that I think she she likened reading sustainability reports to taking non-prescription Ambien. I mean, she's basically saying we've got a problem with communicating this stuff because no one wants to read it. No one wants to talk about transparency and traceability and supply chains. We want to talk about gorgeousness and runways and... But there is, there is a, a big problem of our society, like through social media, is the way we absorb information is in a frame of a second. We go from the worst thing happening in a country to the new bag of at Burberry you can buy at Selfridges. You know, it, it's that kind of example we are living in, in that part of the world. I have to consider the only kind of sustainability I can talk about is the luxury sustainability, mm. because... The high street sustainability is a completely different matter. So from your perspective, what does sustainability mean to you and how do you apply it to luxury? I think we are full of fears as human beings and at the moment our bigger fears is our future. We're facing more and more reality of through our presence on the planet, we're destroying it. We came along to the the beauty of the green revolution becoming the problem of our society. And we're questioning. We're questioning what can we do? Is it not too late? Uh, can we do something? Each of us have an opinion. But the future is definitely that uh, that questioning can't be just a trend. It has to become the reality of the future generations. So is part of your approach then to be looking at longevity and looking at, I don't like that word, timelessness to you? Maybe you do. Uh, longevity is more interesting because as a designer, my concept of clothes is to create tool for lo- longevity relationship. I like the challenge to stay with people and to going through all the facing the way you could rid of them because it's an easy way, but you stick to them and you face the situation and you you understand their, their difference, their weakness, their strength, their own evolution because the person you meet 10 years before it will be completely different 10 years after. And I think 
clothes are part of the tools to reinvent yourself, to show another kind or to finish another kind of your identity, to say, you've never seen that of me. And at that point, you keep your clothes, you keep or you make them have the life they deserve. I love in my life to have a, a coat starting on the red carpet of my life as a designer and finish after in my shed in Suffolk to walk my dog in the morning. Your dog the, is called Dave. My, my dog is called Dave. I just Dave. met him. It's Dave the dog. Is he a Jack Russell? Yes. He was adorable. But, but it's the beauty of clothes have, have life. You know, like I love the fact to have all cashmere jumpers for my friends when they come in winter and they're full of holes. But it's the kind of jumper you want to wear around the fire. You have to accept that clothes just can die through a period of six months and you throw them away and because... You wash them and they're already deformed. I was going to ask you this later, but since you raised it, you divide your time between London and Suffolk. Yes. Can you talk to me a little bit about your relationship with nature? So I wanted to know if you're a gardener. I'm a bad gardener <laughs> because I'm impatient, but I'm really good to give direction to people. And to wear the right jumper. What they should do. All right, good, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's great for me to hang the skin of the designer on Friday night and to go to the country and to be the person. And he allowed me to, uh, to find my balance. He allowed me to, uh, to slow down. He allowed me to have the two life I think I am. One side is someone coming from the country and, and to be at the village and, and just to be Roland and to come back to London and to be the designer. I never thought when I, when I was young I would go for that life I, I thought I would be a, a pure city guy yeah because you ran away from that out. life or not yes, ran away yeah, but, but you, you run left away, it you, you, yeah you let it go and you want something else and you realise that's part of your roots and it's part of who you are and especially when you're creative you realise of how much the starting point of everything you do is from that period and not from the period of your 20s it's from the first years of your life and and when you start to respect that, you start to have a different opinion, the way you want to work, the way you, you want to use fabric, the way you want to be sustainable. Everything comes as a reflection. And is the problem now that young people are too young to be reflective? Is the problem that they need to have a bit trauma to take a decision? You know, it, it's really difficult to change when it's not too late. <laughs> It's really difficult to take that decision to say, I'm going to change, but it's not too late. And uh, I've seen it through diff in different phases of my life. Uh, I've been part of different group, like from ACT UP in the 80s when AIDS started and when people didn't want to hear about it until it became so present that they couldn't escape it. And I think sustainability as a certain reflection of that moment where we could avoid it, but until it's so present, you have to face it. Wow. I haven't thought of those two things in those terms, but on this podcast, I interviewed Stephen Jones, uh -huh. and we started to talk about the AIDS crisis because he lived yeah. through that and lost so many friends and yeah. became such a seminal time that affected so many people in the fashion industry. There is all the time a learning experience from, from what did happen in my life. I learned from that period, and I can use my my way of thinking of that moment and make it evolve of the way I think now. When did you become engaged in ideas around sustainability using that word as opposed to looking at, obviously, your design practice? I know that you were involved in the first Green Carpet Challenge. Yes, but I think sustainability exists from the moment 
I'm a kid of the 60s. I'm a kid of parents who came out of the war. I know what it was not to throw away. I know what it was to pass the clothes of my cousin to me. I know what it was to live in a, in a farm with my grandparents where the respect of the animals, even if you're going to slaughter them, to eat him is part of the process of the family and you respect that animal. You will never hurt him until you, he does what he has to do in the fact that the family and the farm survive. That's, that, that's when you understand really rapidly when you live with animals how you have to respect as a human being the way the, the world is going to grow. Your father was a butcher? Yes. It seems a very long thread to connect fashion with butchery. And it's not. But it's so I do close. like it. Fascinating. It's Tell so us close. about that. It's really close in the fact that uh, the first lesson I learned is is touching the masses, like fat, muscle and bone. That's mean, of course, there were carcasses, and but you start to not be frightened to touch the masses. Like, I know a lot of designers were frightened to touch bodies. They dress, they, they really have... Actually, a lot of designers are very disassociated with womankind and with bodies and yeah. with anything beyond their vision and the... Yeah. It's yes, like the woman in the dress doesn't come into it for them. I agree, which mm. I don't have that problem because I understand straight away that the link of the of the two of them. The second thing I learned is the power of clothing because my father wanted me to be a butcher and I didn't. That's me. I understood straight away how clothes can trap you in a situation and I was trapped in the, the outfit of the butcher's son and I didn't want that. But the second thing in that matter was the apron gave me straight away that big piece of cloth that it was so unique for me and it was so unique for me in that village wearing a big piece of cloth. None of my friends had that experience. And to be able to fold it on me, to, to use that really masculine movement of, of, and not at all gay. It was like the movement were quite ever strength. And in my head, I associate, I associate straight away fabric with strength. I never associate fabric with, with, with the fluffiness or, or girliness it was all the time there is a strength in fabric there is some but did you understand that, that as a kid no but the mind is there to absorb information that's the beauty of what we are we are a blank tape and we have we absorb information is our selection i did create my information where did you grow up exactly in the pyrenees and it could be like australia is mountains, sheep, cows. Maybe more like New seven, Zealand. Seven people, and you have the beach or at Biarritz. That's me. Ah, uh, yeah, uh, of course. It could be Australia, yeah. Did you actually think that you would become a butcher and stay on in that no, world, or no, did you always I, know? I knew that it would be a period of of presence close to my father. I had to do as a child. I was waiting for a long time to grow up as a child. I wanted to do things of adult, and I knew it was until you're a child, you can't touch them. That's mean if I couldn't touch that, I, I accept the, the power of my family over me. I react against it, but I knew I would come out of it. It, it. It's really funny when you're small, the way you start to, to really pile information and knowing what life is going to, to be for you. You know that there are things that you keep with, make yourself. You start to understand who you are. You start to understand the beginning of your identity. You don't know what and where, 
but you start to know how, how I'm going to react. What is my way of dealing with things? What, what is my way to dealing with my parents? What is my way to deal with my teachers? And you start to feel how things can happen. Do you remember when you started to think Paris or style and feel that pull? There are moments of amazing fashion in my life. Is My mum didn't marry in a white dress because she had my, my sister before. And at that time, you don't marry in white. That's my mum really? was wearing a baby blue skirt suit. But because she did a picture in black and white, I thought it was a grey suit. And for a long time in my first collection, you had all of them a grey suit in the collection. I've uh, never heard that. And uh, Gosh. Uh, asking mom, but what, where is your wedding dress? And mom was ironing clothes in the in the living room and said, how do you think I made the curtains of the room? And it was, you know, this kind of white polyester curtain of the 60s. And I was like, oh, wow. And and the magic of that was was quite strong. But... We had a landlady who became like my grandmother. She became my really adoptive grandmother, and I had a strong link with her. And she was a, a seamstress. And yep. I remember the moment sitting in her kitchen when she was sewing and bits of fabrics around and, and the way of cutting, the, the, the smell of cooking and, and sewing. It, everything was linked together, and it was so private. Yeah, I fell in love with that, with these moments. I'm going to jump forwards. So you then arrive in Paris when you're how old? 20. In a Zazu suit. In a Zazu suit. We have talked about Zazu on this podcast yeah. with several previous guests, Catherine you, you Barber, have, for you example. Have to be from the, you have to be love from, it. from that period to understand what Zazu Can you was. explain the suit? Uh, it was in that period of, of the 80s with the shoulder pads and uh, the first reference was end of 30s, beginning of 40s movement of youth where it was disproportional and it was a way of partying and it came back in fashion in the 80s and my first suit was a dark blue Zazu suit, large trousers, really large jacket really and like really narrow in the hip yeah, and wide in the shoulder something that allowed you to create the extreme vision of who you want to become you turned up on the door of the palace yes fab you know the story. i'm fascinated by that place talk about that uh <laughs> which was the privilege which was the, the underground club of the palace and i just i stand myself near near a light you know like uh, the street lights because the the street was quite dark and you had 200 people queuing at, and I was like 15 meters away <laughs> and every time the door lady called Marilyn which was like the tougher woman in Paris was opening the door I was lighting a cigarette <laughs> in your spotlight in my spotlight it was your cinematic moment it was it was pure silver screen attitude and, and, and I learned and too I learned far away like don't want to be to up there clamoring to, no, to get to in to give up to give up because there is a moment she had to look over the mass and the moment she looked over the mass you catch the eye you know it's a concept <laughs> of glamour it's, it's a trick of the eye and you have to glamorous is you have to be at a certain level to define your, your, your physique. And Giacometti understood it in his sculpture, the way he sculpted far away and what you see of a person. But, but even Thierry Mugler could understand the volume on his advertising on the top of a Russian uh, monument. And you had the silhouette. And, and I understood that straight away. And it took three cigarettes for me to come in. <laughs> 
Did she beckon or point? She said, you, come here. Yes. And that was brilliant. <laughs> what was it like in there? Tell me about some of the outfits at that time. Oh, my big memory is uh, Paloma Picasso dancing. Paloma was one of the best dancers because she was that side of Latino because it was a lot of cha-cha, paso doble, mixed with completely 80s music. Mm. It was brilliant the way we partied there. She was very restrained. I've interviewed her, she's fab. But her look was a sort of highly glamorous and highly polished, but with some restraint in there. I mean, she wasn't... Completely Spanish, completely Spanish aristocracy. But on the dance floor, she was like wild. And it's memories of all these people... Remembering them, like Ines de la Fressange, because it was a corner of model, and Ines was there. But you had, on the other side, you had Leslie Winner, which was with Edvige. Edvige was a DJ, but they, they were oh yeah, they were together. Yeah, they yeah. were a girl couple, and you had all this kind of punk entering a, a bourgeoisie, and it was brilliant because you learn society, and everybody was at the table you have you were having dinner or you were coming for a drink and you were wearing a suit and and you pose at the same time but you start to learn society you start to learn the different level of, of society through the people there because I knew what was my my wealth it was my youth and I had to really gamble it here to move on and to stay in that world. How did you stay in that world? What happened then? So you you modelled? You... Yeah, I modelled. I became... Who a, for? Uh, I did model for... Jean-Paul Gauthier found me in another club and asked me to catwalk for him. And after I went from Jean-Paul to Yoji Yamamoto, I went to Japan and I did all the Japanese. And my career and fin- you loved finished Yoji. In, in Italy with for, for Ferry and uh, Trussardi. You love the Japanese designers. I love the, the shock I learned from them. I learned black. <laughs> it was a time where, before to meet uh, Mark Ascoli to, and to catwalk for Yoji, we never wear black, uh, except at night you wear a black suit, evening suit with a white shirt. But the concept of black from head to toes, even your underwear are black. I've never been through that. And the day I cut work for Yoji, I decided after to just wear black. It was an amazing transformation. It's something. How like did it make you, you feel? You shed. It's shedding a skin. You shedding. Uh, it's that power of of clothing. You know, like like I said to you, is how free you feel of your own decision. How you feel complete. Uh, I want to buy. Uh, uh, Chinese outfit. Astin was wearing the same kind of outfit. It's like the, the, the Chinese jacket with the trouser. And you wear that with big black coats, black trainers. You, you dye your underwear black and, and you become that. You that, dyed it? Did yeah, you dye it? Yeah, Could you yeah, not yeah. buy it? No, you could not find them. Really? You know, I've never the, heard that. It was still at the time. Yeah. Fabric were not stretched. <laughs> but just, I love so much the idea that you're Rick, so dedicated Rick, to the Rick look. Rick Kubo came. I think three years after, with starting to put stretch in, in fabric, we didn't have stretch fabric. It was really you were still relying on the on the power of the flea market to buy really weird vintage clothes, and uh, you could buy your your pants like your Kevin Klein, and you put them in the dye to have black pants because you needed the total look. Yeah, love. You also were inspired by, I suppose, were you? I've read it, Azadina Liar. I think Azadina and Yoji at the same time. 
I think you need... Have you seen the retrospective? I can't I'm wait. I'm not yet, but it's supposed I, to be quite go. amazing. I've got to go. I've been reading about it. I mean, such a shame that we lost him. Such an incredible talent. It's life. It's life. I think I lost my father, and, and the moment you lose someone that you are is dearest to you, it's painful, but it's life. And you have to cherish the memory and, and to see how... You bring what you learn from that person to the future. How, how do you give it to someone else? It's beautiful. Elias yeah. is obviously known for his mastery of silhouette, and so are you in very different ways, but I see completely, a parallel. Completely different. Asdin was a technician. Asdin learned technique before to do what he wanted. Uh, and I think Asdin react against the, the will of his customer at the time because they were asking him to copy bigger names as a, a dressmaker and you can see his strength the way he was cutting we love the same thing in women I think it's our Latin side I think it's the fact we came from a more humble background and we grew to what we wanted to be and I think we have that in common to understanding the silhouette we understand women Asdin was not frightened to touch women because I think all his life when he was doing fitting as a dressmaker he had to touch them mm. And we had that in common. Right? And then it's that sensuality as well. We talked before about the fact that not every designer thinks about the woman first and foremost who's going to be in the clothes, mm. making the clothes come alive. It's almost like sometimes they'd rather they were on a hanger <laughs> or a mannequin. But you love oh, no, for, the woman for, in for the clothes. Us, I think for us it's about that magic moment when a woman, a skin and a fabric touch together. But you didn't become a designer till you were 36. Or work I professionally as a designer until you were 36. Time, yeah. 36. You were designing yourself. <laughs> 36 was the, the right time of uh, questioning myself and realizing if it, I, did, I didn't try, I would become a bitter person. I think listeners will be delighted to have evidence of reinvention and the possibility of finding your place and any time along that line. You don't have to find it all. If there are students listening, you don't have to find it all at 20. Everything but, but, adds up to the end, right? But like, like we, we talked about it, we talk about sustainability, which is taking time. That's mean the future of 20 famous and is not the future. It's the bad future of, of us. If that is our future, we are in trouble. Mm. The future of evolving with our time and taking time to do what we love should be our future. I don't know how much it will be, but we have to find that balance. Mm. At 20, you have an experience, you have something, but you don't have everything. And if you ask a young person to question himself about sustainability at 20, it's going to be quite first degree. His answers are going to be so black and white that he's not going to really know what he's answering because... There is, in sustainability, everything can be good and bad at the same time. The question of sustainable fabric for climate change, the price of sustainable fabric, if they are from natural sources, will vary regarding climate change. We've seen it like six years ago with the, the tsunami in Japan and the storm in Australia. The price and the cotton and the wool were not... Uh, fix at all for the, for six months. But also, if everybody used purely natural fibres and continued to make clothes at the rate that we're making them at, it would it's be unsustainable. It's we can't do it. The same, yeah. the same way. 
coming back to sustainability, I started asking you before I just got obsessed with you at the palace about the green carpet challenge. Yes. In 2013, you were one of five designers with Burberry, Christopher Kane, Adam and Victoria Beckham invited to create the first green carpet challenge with Livia Firth. Tell us about that. It's really funny because it's, I think it's the beginning of sustainability and it was the beginning of England and uh, British Fashion Council questioning it. And Livia came along and, and I think for a public space, a public uh, personality, she was the right person to question. And we came along as designer trying to, to really uh, make our first step. I don't think the product by itself was uh, completely defined. I think my sustainability was the fact that the product was sourced close to me. It was in England and produced in England. That's mean I react on the carbon foot situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If I couldn't react on all the components, I react on the carbon foot because I really think the carbon foot is more important is as much important than the sustainability of the seed, of the product. But it's also about taking steps because, as you said, and bringing that word evolution into the conversation, you can't yeah. have immediate change no. or immediate understanding of every facet of what sustainable can mean. Mm-hmm. I think what Livia has done is extraordinary because she has made that link, which we needed and we still need, actually, between glamour and sustainability. I mean, coming back to the first question that I asked you about how do we make it sexy, you know, it can't just be all... Worthy and there is a difference. There is a difference between sexy and red carpet. Livia made it red carpet. Was it sexy? It was red carpet. Now we have to make it sexy. Sexiness is privacy, except if you like, if you're a swinger, exhibitionist. If you're a swinger, (laughs) except if you're a swinger. But if you if you private, sexiness is private. That's been the concept of sexiness is is your day by day basic. It's not just opening and. A newspaper and see a red carpet. Well, let's use the word glamour then, thinking of you in the spotlight. I mean, it's about all those things, right? Or linking all those things to how we get it's, sustainability. It's, it's, it's questioning. Traction. It's really questioning. We had we had moments after the the tsunami in Japan to question why we were buying fabric regarding the nuclear plants close to the factories because if something else was happening we need to know the the level of uh, contamination of fabrics. Oh god I've never thought about that. But we did it was at, uh, for one year we start to, to check every fabric we buy in Japan. We oh, were thinking about food weren't we? We were thinking yeah. we can't buy the seaweed. Yeah and, and that Gosh. was but that was a questioning. I never thought when I was 15 I went to fashion that I, w- I will have a map of Japan to select fabric. That was a situation. The Arabic Spring created another situation, like I say, another situation with the, the price of the cotton. Is how do you select a fabric? That which price do you, do you select it? And six months when you can start to produce, first it's not the same fabric, and it's not the same price. How do, how do you move on as a designer with that situation? And that worked where at the same time that Livia creating the concept of, of the green carpet, and. Uh, It was great to start it. It has to go further. Talking of fabric, I love that you did a collaboration with Catherine Poulton of the North Circular. Can you tell us who she is and what that is? Catherine is, uh, she was a model at the time who catwalked for me in my really first big collection when when I entered the BFC. And since that time, she became a friend of the brand, 
cabin model. She did all all the trunk show. It, it's someone that that is really present in the in the company. And when she started North Circular, I think the concept was so brilliant, but so painful, really painful, because everything is one to one. Every piece she produces one to one about the pieces about the person who's going to knit it. It's about it's like religion. You dedicate yourself on on a non-blueprint situation because nobody has done it before. That's when she was considering fashion as a whole where you sell product to people, but you have to accept, explain them. I sell you one product after one, after one, after one. And they're all going to be a bit different. And, but that's not even the problem. It's like, can you accept it? Can you accept that, that my journey is not selling you 20 jumpers, it's, it's one, number two, number three, number four. And, and in that way, and I think she touched from the beginning the real problem of sustainability. Her experience was the proof of what we have to face. In what way? In a way that she stopped it because it was really overwhelming. She didn't have all the answers, all the tools she needed to, to evolve. And he was taking over her life. So what exactly did you do with Catherine? At the end, we did uh, uh, one of my uh, top, which is the Eugene top, and I asked her to take the pattern of it and to come out with a different knitting of it. I've seen it. It's beautiful. And uh, it was really fantastic. But so good, good texture on that it was It was so fantastic to, to give her that freedom and, uh, and to bring it for the... Yeah, at the time to bring it to the store and, and to see what's the reaction of it. So how many did were made? Oh, I think no more than five or six. Yeah. But that's you still have to consider sustainability at that level at the moment. Right. It's not for everybody. But also we talked about story and communication and that's what that does. I've seen that picture, I didn't see the garment. But you see it and then it becomes something of a talking point, which then opens the door to saying this... Yeah, but you have to be careful because in France, fashion is a, just a talking point and people absorb another kind of clothes. I think it's really important that sustainability is it's not about changing our fabric, it's changing the way we live because the fabric will, will evolve on the way we live. But can we change the way we live? Can we consider we're going to promote ourselves through uh, social media with the same outfit. Well, I was going to say, 10, slow down. 15 times. People don't want to talk about reducing consumption because people are trying to sell things. So this is the constant question in, in this fashion conversation. It's the elephant in the room, the cliche, but nobody wants to really talk about, apart from Vivian Westwood, Yes. don't buy things. Yeah. Or buy less things. But if we talk about sustainability for, for the young people, the, the one who start now, which I think is the best step, is when you have no blueprint of a past. And I was lucky twice to have, to have that period because I, when I started and when I start again, when I lost my name, which, which you can redefine the rules of, of the way you want to live and the way to sell. The way to be sustainable is to produce the more around you and to sell yourself down. So as in locally, shorter yes. distances? Yeah. To use the fabric that you think are right for your product and to sell you, yourself directly to the customer to avoid every relationship with the, uh, other people who will oblige you to be different or to change or, or, or to become 
what you don't want to be. Incidentally, talking about local production, according to the Ellen MacArthur New Textiles report from 2017, fashion's carbon footprint is equal to or greater than all of maritime and all of air travel. So the amount of carbon that is released by all planes taking off in a year and all shipping is the same as fashion. Crazy. It, it is, or, or do we consider the amount of people we are on the planet and the amount of uh, Indian people who can have a fridge this year? Okay, good point. It's the same thing. It's what do we reproach to our carbon food considering about the amount of people we are on the planet? True. I mean, I suppose these statistics are good for shock value because it makes people go... Yikes, you know, and, for a frame of a second. I really think I really think that our decision to be sustainable is consider what we want to afford. I, I was executive producer on the documentary Ten Billion and I know the I have a certain point of view on, on the future of this planet, but I know most of the people I invite there when you tell them the problem is going to be food, it's going to be kids is going to be the way and our carbon foot. These three points are really difficult for families to, uh, or, yeah. for, or for people to consider, how am I going to feed my three kids? Mm. But, but the first question, do you need to have three kids? Well, we're not allowed to say that. It's a hard... Um, I just say that because I have no kids. And sometimes I find myself wishing to say life would be better if we didn't keep producing so many kids. But you can't say it because it's the biological imperative and it, we can't tell people how many kids to have and I don't know. It's a terrifying... Like it's we, a, we can't it's say been, to a person you have to be a vegan or vegetarian or eat meat. You, well, I we, guess, we can't. You know no, what? If you can't ask people what, how many kids you have, which right do we have to know um, what you feed them with? I think the key to that is, and I found myself saying it, we can't tell people what to do. No. We can only say... This is the situation. How do you feel that you can best navigate this morally according to your compass? And that's all we can do. Opinions. A little different, right? It's really different. But I really think there is one, one situation I'm really uh, questioning in my work is I have no problem to change for my awareness if that change takes me in a path where I can learn something. I really enjoyed it. I think all my life was about learning by not being teached. And I really want to still learn. That's been sustainability, if I'm still learning, is brilliant. Yeah. If sustainable products stop me or trap me in a situation where I think I can't evolve, I will have to decide my, which decision I'm taking. Mm. It's no more or less. It's the pure sense of honesty because I think there is a moment... You have to be honest in that broadcast. People will have to be honest mm. about their point of view. There is no point to give a really polite and diplomatic mm. point of view if you can't do it. I'm not a vegetarian. I'm a son of a butcher. You're the son of a butcher. I love meat. But like I said to you, I respect the way animals are killed to feed us. Could I become a vegetarian? Yes, I could. We might be able to grow meat in a lab. That's happening. With no problem. But that's the one I won't touch because I don't feel that's not meat, that's protein for Mm. me. Fabric is the same. Until there is no balance between the sustainability and the non sustainable. But is non sustainable still sustainable? Is polyester in a certain way more sustainable? Because it it isn't. (laughs) But it is on, on the way you can 
reuse it Except as a, a fiber. Except the microfibers in the water is the problem. There's always a problem. But the, and that's where, where, mm. where we stand. Let's it, talk about fabrics. Yeah. I was really excited by the work that was done over London Fashion Week with the Sustainable Angle. Cool. It was, uh, it was a nice little project. Mm. But it was a little project. <laughs> Tell so, me about what you did. I think it's really nice to see people, and I resonize one of them, who have a career of self-centered definitions. We were so self-centered the last 10 years about it, to make our career. It's really nice when we come out of that of that skin and, and try to do something else, and to do something else that, that is not about you, it's about the, a better world or a better way for people to live. And when Arizona told me that she was part of, of that project... So Arizona Muse? Yes. I was really interested to try. And we did one of the, the pieces of the collection in one of the sustainable fabric. We, we really consider everything. It's called Eco Vero. Yes. What is it? I don't know. <laughs> i cut that bit out. No, it's, it's again, it's, I know it's sustainable, but I'm part of the people... I've been told it's sustainable. You don't have to cut it. It's, it's the reality of it. It's the reality of, of everybody using sustainable. We are told that the fabric is sustainable. Yeah, but don't you go, if you want to know, you can go and look into how it was made. But what, to go there? Am I going to visit every place, every fabric I'm going to use? Let's be honest here. I'm for it. But you can, because these things are certified. These things are... I actually don't know about EcoVero, but I know, for example, that if you look at GOT certified organic cotton, you can be sure that these things are certified what they say they are. I mean, that's why the no, accreditation... I, I do agree, but, but that's, I don't think that's the way we will change. I don't right. think by, by having a, a certificate, we will change. You know, we just carry on to consume. The concept of, of changing is to understand really what the difference is making. But that, that's where I really think sustainability is quite difficult because we have to understand it's the change of our future. As human beings, we've been spending our life to really uh, support and, and pray the fathers, which are the gods. But the only mother we have is the planet. We never take care of her. And we're talking now, let, let's take about the mother. Because if we don't take over. She's going to take care of us in her way. <laughs> I often think about that, and, you know, it's true. If we stuff it up anymore, nature's not dying. I mean, we are actually seeing mass, the sixth mass extinction, so actually much of nature is dying. But when the planet is no longer inhabitable by us, yeah. nature will carry on. Yeah. I don't think we are, we are bad. I, th I think we just have been uh, uh, through time to say we have to procreate to exist. But actually, That's what every religion tells us, procreate to exist, procreate to be enough on the planet to control. Well, the central tenet of this discussion is the idea of dominion and control. Like religion does tell us man will have dominion over nature and over our surroundings. That's the problem I have with it. I think we're part of nature and that we, we are, are part of nature. We forget we're part of nature, not above nature. Yeah. And that we need to be reminded. And nature reminds us. You talked about the tsunami. Yeah. But nature reminds us that we can't control it, actually. We, I completely agree with you on that. And, and, and I think it's quite fantastic in our time. We can question that now. We can question religion. We can through sustainability. 
not through just are you for it or against it, through sustainability. We can question what religion has done for as a message to procreate, which is with respect, but what is is doing now to the planet. The fact that by procreation you have to give to people a lifestyle and that lifestyle is now destroying If us. If everybody lived as we in the privileged West lived, my goodness, yeah. we'd need, I've forgotten yeah. how many uh, planets. Who are we in the West world to say, no, don't do that or don't have that, but we had it for the last 40 years, but you can't have it because now... You mentioned no, that film can, 10 billion. Yeah. Can you sum it up? Oh, the only way is watch it. <laughs> I think it's it's a movie that is a documentary that I think is quite important for me. I wanted to be part of it. I want to be really helping for that that message to exist. And with a lot of humility, is just watch it. And don't watch it by yourself. Watch it with people because it's a documentary that makes you talk after. You want to share. The best kind. Yeah, you want to share uh, your, your opinion with other people. Okay, I want to finish up just by asking you about common objective. That's part of the, the nice thing happening is the fact that common objective is starting to exist and uh, they want to be the, there to help and they want to be there to see how they're going to grow because they will just grow the way we're growing. They will just exist the way we want it to exist as designers, the way we want to use it, the question we have. And I think it's quite nice when people want, want to help and I think common objective are helpers. They want to be there to help. To How did you meet Tamsin? Tam, uh, I met her when I did uh, a talk about, I think, sustainability. My first talk about sustainability at uh, uh, the Textile Museum. And she's the nicest person, but she's stubborn and she fights for what she wants and she carries on. And I think it's brilliant to have that kind of, of qualities of be nice, but knowing what you want. And she's like that. Are you like that? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not as nice, but I know what I want. <laughs> Merci beaucoup. C'était un plaisir. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm the fat angel. I tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you we're okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you